I'm Dan. And I'm Jordan. And this is the Money Basics Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that's closer to uh, near and dear to my heart, which is investing. And mine. <laughs> well, like we've discussed, we kind of have this yin and yang relationship where you've got a lot of experience uh, more in the, the debt management side of things. I was an idiot. Yeah, but you look at you now, you're, you're smarter, you're educated, and you're spreading the word, and you've got that experience, and it's made you a lot wiser in this stuff, right? So they say, but thank uh, you. Me, I'm more like that Kane Brown song where he's like, I cheated and I lied. And he goes on about how he did everything wrong, but he got the one thing right. I'm like the opposite of that song where I've done literally everything right, except I hate my wife. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sabrina, please don't hurt me. Uh, <laughs> no, um, but you know, I've got a little more experience um, with the investing side of things. So I'm pretty pumped to have this episode today. Um, and basically the plan that we're going with for this episode is to... Hold you by the hand and, and talk you through just some very, very, very basic building blocks to get you to the point of investing. Um, and I mean the absolute basics because it's uh, it's so overwhelming if you don't know the first thing about it. Um, and you can do a lot of damage if you come into this blind, not knowing what you're doing. Uh, you get excited and you have no game plan, no understanding of how stock markets or investments work. You could really cause yourself a lot, of, a lot of damage, a lot of trouble. Yep. Um, so, so we want to break some down, break down some of these concepts for you, um, and just start you off right. So, with that in mind, before we get going on the investing side of it, I would like to rewind a little bit to the last couple episodes we've done. Um, and just make it absolutely abundantly clear that before you invest, it's important to have an emergency fund and to make sure you pay off your high interest debt, which we talked about in episodes four and five of this podcast. And it might be worth checking out if you're not quite sure what I'm talking about right now. Which even if you do know what he's talking about right now, you should listen to those episodes anyway. And well, <laughs> I really feel like we have to stress the importance of this, especially with the type of investing that we I feel like we both prefer at this point, which is the yep. value investing way, which we'll get value, into. Value, dividend, yeah. 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 Um, because having money aside in an emergency fund and having your high interest debt paid off or you know most of your debts paid off arguably is going to be like your insurance or your safety blanket. Yeah. And the money that you use to invest should, in our opinion, be money that you could literally burn and not really care about obviously you don't want to do that and you don't want to lose money yeah. and that's the rule is not to lose money but and that's it having an emergency fund that's that's your safety net that's your your protective little blanket that's going to keep you safe where if you only invest money that you don't really care about losing now obviously you don't want to lose it but money that you're not going to need tomorrow or the next day or the next day to pay for your groceries to pay for your mortgage or whatever if that's the money you're investing with if you lose the extra money, it's not going to change your life any. Okay, so whatever the stock market does day to day shouldn't scare you if that's the way you're investing. Okay, so it's important to have a good, well-funded emergency fund, have a little extra playing money, and then it's the excess that you put to work for you in the stock market. I feel like this is going to be a really tough episode because I've already wanted to say a bunch of things that, <laughs> like, we need to like I need to just slow down. So anyway, yeah. Sorry, so continue. The, <clears throat> the first thing I want to dive into here um, is a basic concept that I might. Be taking for granted here i mentioned at the beginning uh, that you have to pay off your high interest debt before you invest okay and what's interesting is there's not really a clear definition of what high interest debt is okay if you googled what is high interest debt you'll get a couple of different answers now this is something you're going to have to decide for yourself what you consider to be high interest debt okay um, 
So when we say high interest, would that be 6% interest? Would that be 8%, 20%, right? That's a decision that you have to make and it's based on your comfort level, your investing strategy. Um, and I would say a number of factors, including your emergency fund, emergency fund are gonna factor into that decision as well. Um, but a general rule of thumb is a lot of people will say that if a, a debt that's higher than your mortgage rate would be considered high interest debt. Okay, so they're saying if you've got all your debt cleared off except for your mortgage, um, then you're probably okay to start investing because uh, mortgage debt, that's low interest. You, you know, there's not much sense paying off the mortgage um, in a hurry. You could just invest instead, okay? I don't necessarily agree with that. And the reason I don't agree with that necessarily is because as you are probably currently seeing is that interest rates go up and therefore mortgage rates go up. Um, so, in my head, I see a high in, my high interest rate number is around 4%. So that is to say that if I'm looking at my personal situation and my options are either pay down my mortgage that's at 4% or going to be at 4% or higher soon, so that's one option, or my other option is to invest in the stock market, I would highly consider putting my money towards my mortgage instead of investing. What do you, th what do you think? What's your number? Do you have one? Honestly, before reading these notes, I never really put much thought into it. <laughs> but it's something you should think about because renewal's coming up. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and you're not going to be locked in at one point six nine forever. No, no, and and you did kind of just take the words out of my mouth for sure. Like so, like you've been bringing this up with our mortgage rates and all the interest rates, and I've been following it obviously with all the hikes and stuff. That yeah, there's going to be have to going to be a decision that has to be made moving forward. But yeah, honestly, I I never really considered the mortgage as a debt. Um, I think just because I, I've had really high interest debts and now that I've cleared that off, I just want to try and forget about it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but no, I, I mean, I think I think this is a good rule of thumb. I think anything around 4% and um, yeah, I'm going to have to put a little more research for myself and thought into this uh, if and when that time comes with the mortgage and if it gets over 4%. Yeah, and 4% and is my number. To me, that's a conservative number. And like I said a little bit earlier, that there's going to be a number of factors that's going to affect what your number is. And you'll have to sort of decide this for yourself. But if you're an absolute beginner and you're like, Dan, what the hell are you talking about? Um, maybe it's best to lean a little more conservatively. Maybe that 4% number is a good rule of thumb until you have a good grasp on it. Okay. Um, 4% is conservative. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Why am I coming up with this 4% number? The reason I come up with 4% is because the average return of the stock market from 1960 to today, and when I say the stock market, I'm referring specifically to the S&P 500, which is basically the 500 biggest American companies all lumped up into like one single stock. More on that in a bit. What does S&P stand for? Standard & Poor's. I never knew that. <laughs> okay. So the S&P 500, it's the 500 biggest companies in in america uh and they've they created an index fund which is they basically took all this, these companies stocks lumped them into one big basket together and that's what they call the s p 500 and since 1960 until today the average return of people who just bought into that s p 500 is 9.96 percent per year um or if you want to count inflation, because obviously the money in 1960 isn't the same as the money of today. If you count inflation, you end up 6% ahead of inflation every single year um, since 1960. Okay, so why, why is this important? Well, I just told you, if you were in a situation where you could pay off your mortgage rate at 4% or 5%, let's say somewhere around there, 
If I take my money and I pay that on my mortgage at that rate, to me, that's the same as investing at a guaranteed return rate of four or 5%, whatever my mortgage rate is, right? Paying down the debt or investing in getting that gain, it's the same thing. It's either I'm losing that much money or I'm investing gaining that much money and I have to turn around and pay it on the mortgage anyways, right? But the difference between investing in the stock market and investing in my mortgage debt is that I'm guaranteed to pay off that debt, which is a guaranteed return of four or 5% when I pay the mortgage down. When I put the money on the stock market, nothing is guaranteed when it comes to investing. Even okay? the most stable companies, everything's got some Think, risk to it. Things fluctuate, yeah. right? Things fluctuate all the time. Um, so I might, you know, I might say, well, I could invest at 4% or I could invest and get, you know, Dan just told me 9.96% per year. Well, with your luck, you'll invest in the S&P 500 and it happens to be the year that it crashes 20%. And then you'll be pretty stupid knowing that you could have, you could have just put that money onto your mortgage and been 4% ahead of, of, everyone, of everyone else basically, right? But not only just 4% ahead, if you invested in the S&P 500 and it happened to be a negative 20% year, you are 24% behind where you would have been if you just put the money into the mortgage, right? So that that's that's a way of securing your return. It's a guaranteed return. Hopefully, that makes sense. Um, so I just ran the numbers on the S and P five hundred. I believe in investing in that. I do buy into that, but it's not the only thing you can invest in, right? And there's other safe options. Um, you could invest in the Canadian market. So our Canadian equivalent of that is the uh, what is it? The TSX something 60 or whatever it's basically the the 60 biggest companies on the toronto stock exchange all canadian companies i didn't know that existed either i'm learning <laughs> lots tonight <laughs> so it's the same concept they take the biggest companies lump them up into a basket together um and that uh grows roughly uh nine-ish percent over the last 20 years on average sorry I, I should correct i've seen like the ticker tsx percentage they just leave the 60 out yeah okay thank you okay good yeah. i'm not as well and there's and there's and there's like i'm just giving you some basic basic yeah, yeah, examples yeah. That's good. That's good. For, for our listeners there's like there's like a thousand of these of these bundles of stocks okay all tracking different markets and stuff we're going to sort of get into that a little bit later um, but just for illustration purposes so all that to say, that's why for me, I take that 4% rule because it's like I can guaranteed get 4% back on my money or I can roll the dice and hope to make 9%. And, and in a long period of time, it's fairly, it's pretty likely that I will average out to 9%, but I would just hate to be the unluckiest guy in the world where I go all in on this stock market and it happens to be the year it drops 20%. And then I'm sitting here and I'm paying out the ass for my mortgage because I just renewed at 6% or whatever. Who knows what interest rates are going to be at renewal time. Um, and don't think it won't happen because like we just went through COVID and that was a huge crash. Yeah. And we are currently in the, a market downturn. I wouldn't call it a crash because it's kind of going sort of stably, slowly down, but it's definitely being considered a market downturn. So things are still sort of just stagnant right now in the stock market for the last like, I don't know, off the top of my head, three months or so or more. Yeah, it's been kind of wiggling up and down. It's been slightly going up in the last... <clears throat> let's say three months, but uh, it is definitely not a lot of, not a lot of confidence that it's going to keep going up, right? Like yeah. it's, it's weird. It's, it's a little sketchy. Um, what else I want to point out too, this whole idea of, you know, if, if your mortgage rates are high or you're going to be renewing into a high mortgage rate environment, um, it's not a bad idea to, to get that guaranteed 4% debt paid off or whatever your mortgage rate is, because I don't know about everyone else. I don't know about you, Jordan, but for Sabrina and I, uh, 
having the mortgage paid off by the time we, we retire, that's part of our retirement plan. Yeah. Like our our plan for retirement not working anymore hinges on being debt free by the time we come to that point. So if I start paying that 4% onto the mortgage, like extra money, um, then I'm gonna be ahead of schedule on this retirement plan. And that's a really good position to be in. Yeah, I've never not paid extra money on my mortgage ever since I've had one. Yeah, and a lot of mortgages, like we're, we're both in fixed mortgages, so there's they, they're seen as sort of restrictive. You're not allowed to do a lot of things. You're not allowed to put extra money. But mortgages these days, they've gotten competitive. They've, they allow a lot of extra ways to put more money on the mortgage. Uh, so mine, for example, I think it's it's every year. I think you're allowed to put an extra 15 or 20 percent of the total value of your mortgage down every year. So like I, that's like 40 grand or 50 grand. I don't know. I'm too stupid to do the math in my head right now. But every year we could put that much down. No, we never would. That's crazy amounts of money. But if we just wanted to put 10 grand down one year instead of investing in the stock market that year, yeah, yeah, why not? And then down the road, that's going to be 10 grand less that I have to mortgage and, and pay a huge interest rate on. Yeah, and being mindful that when you pay extra on your mortgage, whether you do a lump sum or you do like something like a, like a, a weekly payments, which like is an basically an extra payment instead of doing monthly, yep. um, or what some banks will call accelerated weekly or accelerated biweekly. That's what we do. Yeah, biweekly bi accelerated. Tack on sort of a little bit of extra money, so you're kind of paying more up front, but you're paying more down off your mortgage. Um, so there's a, sort of a lot of options for you to be able to pay down your mortgage quicker. And that's the strategy that I've implied or um, employed, yeah, employed. <laughs> thank you, geez. Um, because of one of my buddies who actually reached out to me and said that we were doing pretty cool work with uh, all the socials with Money Basics and stuff that nice. got me started on this. He was, right. he was the one, one of the key people that got me started on this getting out of debt investing journey. Is that that Ryan guy? Yeah, I yeah. Ryan, if you're listening, I checked out your website not that long ago. Love it. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um, he was the first one to tell me because I was talking to him about rental properties and and, and uh, mortgages and stuff. And he used to work for a bank and he said he hated it because he was selling his soul. And we should uh, we should plug his website in the description. After. We will. We yeah. will add. He's got a website called Get Rich Brothers. Him and his brother do it. Um, .com, I think. Uh, anyway, we'll plug it in the description. You guys can check it out. Pretty cool stuff. Um, anyway, he was the one that turned me on to that. He was like, do accelerated weekly mortgage. And, and I've done it ever since. Like I've never not been in that type of scenario. Yeah, so. it, it's kind of silly to not do that <laughs> when you look, when you look at the math, like it'll shave off years of your overall, like your total mortgage. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. I took a 25 year amortization. And if you look at the total after doing it, the, the payment style, it brings me down like 21 or it originally brought me down to 21 years. So that's like, I've shaved off three years and some of payments just, just by doing that. So like, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And the way that works, like without overcomplicating it, it's basically you're making payments faster than Joe Blow who's just doing it like once a month or whatever. Yeah. And by doing it faster, you're, you're getting more money down. You're, you're creating more, more, more um, payment frequency, which means you get charged less interest. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because at first we were like, oh man, like it's an extra mortgage payment basically. But like now we've been doing it for so long that we don't even notice it. It's great. Yeah. I don't even, like if anybody who's buying their first house or whatever or coming up for renewal, like you shouldn't consider anything other than accelerated weekly or bi-weekly. Um, I don't think there's actually any difference between weekly or bi-weekly. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But I feel like I researched that not super long ago and I didn't find a difference. But maybe I'm out to lunch here. Um, okay, so now that we've talked about this whole idea of risk tolerance, paying down your like low interest debt, and I'll do air quotes on that because we just talked about what is low interest, what is high interest, right? So you, it's something you have to decide, okay? 
Anyways, let's let's move forward on this. Well, hang on, hang on. One last okay, thing. Okay, one thing. So while you're paying off this 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 debt, and we're talking about that high interest debt, and while you're doing all that stuff, and listen to our episode four and five again, talk about paying off debt and what that looks like. Um, what I did, what really worked for me when I was paying off the debt and going through the whole seven baby steps, Dave Ramsey stuff, and just being hardcore, I was learning about investing. Um, so you had actually gave, lent me a book called uh, Invested by Danielle Town. That was what just snowballed my interest in all of this. And I started really looking into more of uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Peter Lynch are some of the three names that I really looked at a lot. You can type all this on Google and YouTube, which is they have lots of videos of these guys talking. I know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are for sure guys that love to teach. They're like 100 years old. They've been doing this since 1900. They've got <laughs> like $700 billion company. I was reading an article literally today about Berkshire Hathaway. Hathaway. Uh, it's insane. Um, you could literally pull up their portfolio and buy any of the companies they own. You'll probably do well. Don't take that as stock advice. I'm, I'm, I'm not an, I'm not a professional. Um, but point is, is they're awesome. They love to teach. Um, they're not out there to get anyone. They, they, they don't need to. Peter Lynch is another one I found was really interesting. He was another dude that uh, he was a fund manager for Magellan and something and something. Anyway, he's done a lot. He's kind of around the same sort of style as Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Some of the stuff he says so plain English yeah makes complete sense I love listening to the guy even yeah. though the videos they recorded them are from like 1990 so it's a little fuzzy and weird but it's a fantastic guy to listen to I love it so these those three old guys they're all like some of the best investors in the entire planet but uh, you know who's better than them at investing Na Nancy Pelosi and her husband <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know um, the other thing yeah crooks yeah the other thing I, I really liked, like, and I tell, like, direct people to it a lot is I, I find wealth simple. Yeah. Just their spirit, their concept, their yep. business is fantastic. And we plug their TLDRs every, uh, yeah. every week I or whatever I love it that is. newsletter. So Wealth Simple has their website, but they also have a YouTube channel. They have a thing called uh, the um, Wealth Simple Masterclass. Um, it's like an 11 episode. I think they're about 10 minutes an episode. They literally walk you through the basics like like our business model money basics is on this mini series um it's fantastic and they hired an actor and i can't remember the guy's name but he's in succession yeah, yeah. Um, craig or greg greg but greg, oh my god kid, the, yeah the, anyway the, the and he's cousin. actually kind of quirkily funny in this and it's it keeps your attention and it's good so i recommend it we'll plug that in our description as well the master class series is great i learned a lot from watching that and and anything well simple just going through their 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 oh, yeah, content yeah. their website their everything yeah their whole system is like you've probably heard me shit on the big banks the big canadian banks quite a bit i'm sure i have on this podcast it's literally all i talk about my personality is just shitting on big banks but um well simple is like flipping that model on its head where they literally are looking out for your best interests yes they're a business yes they make money off you but they're so upfront with everything yeah um, and they, their website is just littered with educational articles written in plain English. Yep. Um, you read their TLDR newsletter, it's like written by somebody who actually has a personality and is writing things in a way you can understand versus the big banks that write everything in very confusing words. Yep. They're, I'm certain that's by design. Um, I mean, I can't prove it, but I can have my conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, so Wealth Simple, like I cannot say enough about them. We both use them. Yep. Um, and even if you don't spend a penny on them, they have all these free resources you can check out just to learn you don't yep. need to sign up with them it's just there what really caught 
turned my attention to them was when I first started considering what I was going to do in terms of my investing when I was ready. I was I actually did not open a Wallace and Bull account to start. I actually opened up a Questrade account first because I'd done research and looked at it and people really liked the Questrade. And, yeah. um, there's differences with that. We'll get into that later. But well, simple. I remember it was a no. So Quest Trade charges a commission fee for every trade that you make, which is common. That's yeah, very common. Most brokers do um, five to ten dollars, depending on what it is. Sometimes it's fifteen, whatever. They have a, they have a range with Quest Trade. And um, when I switched or started Wealth Simple, I the, one of the main reasons because of zero fees and or commission on commission trades. No com, no fees on commission for trades. You, um, you're confusing the shit out of everyone. If you, if you buy a stock or you sell a stock, they don't charge you anything to do that, assuming you're not exchanging currencies thank you okay so then i wondered well how the hell do these people make money like if they're not charging a commission and i'm doing all these trades like you could literally trade like if i had a hundred dollars i could buy one dollar of a company a hundred times with zero commission yeah. which you couldn't do with like say scotiabank for example the worst company of all time um i had i trade they would charge me when i first started they charged me 24 dollars 99 for a trade Way. which means I want to, let's say I want to buy $100 worth of stock. Just to buy the stock for 100 bucks, they're going to take $24.99 off the top in fees. When I later sell that stock, they're going to take another $24.99. And then they eventually lowered it to $9.99, which it currently sits at. Meanwhile, I can go over to Wealth Simple. They don't charge a penny. Yeah. So I wondered, like, how the heck do they make money? So then I just simply went on their website and I found the information within five minutes and they broke it all down. They, they, I'm not going to go into how they, but you can do it yourself if you're interested. But they break down how they make money and it's not through, obviously, commissions. It's through other avenues and all that kind of yeah, stuff. A like, lot of it is foreign exchange fees. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really cool. I thought it was really cool. They put that there. Yeah. Um, and it seems legit because anyone that I've sort of talked to or are seen talk about it, you know, um, agree. Um, the other big resource that I use that really helped me out was uh, the investopedia.com website. They have stock information, articles like Well Simple. They teach people how to invest. Um, they sort of go through articles. But the nice cool thing was they have a simulator on there. And a simulator is just a game that's on their, their web browser um, that simulates the stock market, real stock market data. And you have you can set the parameters to whatever you want, but you have an X amount of money that you can start with. You can invest in companies on this game and pretend like you're actually investing. Yeah, fake money. Fake money, yeah. So I actually did that. I was playing around with it. They actually charge you commission fees. They do the whole bang, shebang. Fake commission fees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's all free. And it's just like, it's all fake play money. And it was kind of cool for to me to just screw around with that and try it out and all that kind of stuff. And some of the companies I bought actually made a ton of money. It was because it was around yeah, COVID that was, time. Yeah, that was pre-COVID and you were yeah. buying all the tech stocks. Yeah, and they went up like 150, 300%. And I was like, yeah. holy man, if this was real money, I'd be up like $10,000 right now. And I was like, it just made my eyes huge. And I was like, this is really cool. Um, so that was really cool. I still check out their website from time to time because the articles and stuff pop up. Um, and just there's a whole myriad of YouTube channels and stuff from some content creators that I really like. And I know you like some of them too. So one of the guys I really like is uh, his channel's name is Canadian in a T-shirt. He talks about I know he's and he sounds silly. He kind of looks silly, um, uh, but he just he's he again plain English makes sense. I've learned about RESPs with him. TF like basically he's got everything Canadian. Um, uh, and it, it's good to find Canadian there. people because yeah. a lot of the YouTube finance people you'll find are usually American. So it's nice to find a couple of these really good Canadian people. Yeah, and he reviews like the well, simple the broker. Anyway, he's got a whole bunch of stuff. Daniel Pronk is another guy that yeah, I listen good. to. He does like, a lot of like company breakdowns and stocks and stuff. I would say he's probably not for a beginner. He's yeah, got he'd a, be lot a little of, like, more on the advanced, advanced side, stuff, but it's kind of entertaining. But it's good. Um, Griffin Milks is another guy. Griffin uh, Milks is cool. He's an Ottawa boy or just near Ottawa and. Uh, 
he does investing stuff, but he also talks a lot about real estate for people who are interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I like Griffin Milks a lot. He's probably my favorite on this list. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and then Brandon Beavis Investing is another channel. Um, he's, he's from big, Toronto. Yeah, he's a big channel. I mean, his dad do it, I guess. Yeah, I don't watch a lot of it. I've seen a couple of things there. And... Uh, I forget. There was a few of them that I really grabbed onto with him. I forget what the heck I was looking at. But anyway, he really broke down some stuff for me that I really appreciated. So if you guys want to check these channels out, give these guys a, a sub or a like. It would be great. Um, but they were super helpful to me while I was paying off my debt, learning about investing and, and, and money and everything else. So now you can continue. All right, so let's backtrack a little bit. So remember we were sort of, before we got off on these resources, we were talking about this concept of you can either invest your money or you can pay off you know some sort of lower range debt. Um, so we talked about the risk benefit of that, right? So you have to make the decision. Um, so let's move forward with that concept a little bit. So let's decide that I don't have any high interest debt Okay, so I've looked at my mortgage. I've decided, you know what? It's not worth investing in my mortgage, we'll say. Um, so I want to actually invest in the stock market. So where exactly is one supposed to do that? Uh, here in Canada, we've got a couple of amazing tools for that. Okay, and the two common ones you've probably heard about and you probably don't fully understand if you're listening to this channel um, is the RRSP and the TFSA. Common letters, I'm sure you've heard them but very, very misunderstood. So I'm actually gonna start with the TFSA because I think it's a little easier to understand. <laughs> so the TFSA stands for the Tax-Free Savings Account. Uh, so basically what that means is it's, it's a bank account that you open, it's registered with the government, okay, and your bank takes care of all the details for that. So let's say, for example, you open it up with Wealthsimple, which we love. Um, you'll click a bunch of things, you'll do a little e-signature and stuff, and you'll be off to the races. It's not- Use the link that we provide, you yeah, get a bonus we'll put a link. too. Um, it's not very hard to set up um, and then what happens is this account exists and it acts very much like your savings account at whatever bank you're with right now. It's much like your checking savings account, okay? But the difference is whatever you do inside that account does not get taxed, okay? So if I just park 10 grand in this account and I just leave it there just like a savings account, you are wasting your money because most tax-free savings accounts they usually pay virtually no interest at all usually um so it'll be like 0.1 percent okay so you have 10 grand in there you'll make like five cents a month the math is wrong i know um and it's useless to do it that way what you're supposed to do in these accounts is this is where you're supposed to buy your investments okay and then when you buy your investments and they grow inevitably the stocks you own, let's say for example, you bought uh, Tesla stock, okay? Not that I'm advocating you do that. Let's just say you bought Tesla and it goes up $5,000 in a week. And you're like, holy shit, I'm loaded. I'm gonna sell, now your total account value is $15,000. I sell, you sell your Tesla stock, you got 15 grand in that account. Well, if you did that anywhere else except for your tax-free savings account, the government would come knocking looking for taxes on that $5,000 you just earned. Not in the tax-free savings account though. There is no tax inside that account. Crazy, right? Um, so it's there's some rules behind it. I don't wanna waste all of our time getting into it. I actually wrote an article on this, which we'll link if you wanna get into the some a little bit of the more finer details. Um, but we'll just go over some of the basic, basic broad stuff, okay? So there's a limit to how much money you can stick in that account. You can't just put a million dollars in this account, okay? Uh, if you were 18 in the year 2009 or earlier, um, you could put $88,000 in it, I believe. I believe the stats I pulled up were up to date, but basically you got about 90 grand of room in there. Don't quote me on that. Do your research before you, you put the money in there. And don't go over your limit. 
if you go over your limit, so you contribute too much money, um, then in that case, you're gonna have to pay tax. And the rate of tax is that it's 1% of the over contribution per month. So for example, let's say the limit is $88,000 exactly, and I put $100,000 in there, well then every single month that I leave that money in there, the government of Canada is gonna come knocking on my door asking for 1% tax on $12,000 because that's the extra, that's, that's how much more I put in than I was allowed to. Okay, so kind of sucks. It's not a big deal if you like put the money in, you're like, oh shit, that was an accident. And you figure it out right away and you sell and you make it right. Uh, the government will sometimes cut you some slack. Worst case scenario, they'll come charge you 1% for one month, no big deal. But if you threw the money in there, you forgot about it for a year, that would really hurt. Okay, so that's the tax-free savings account. So don't use it just as a savings account. Wait, don't go on any further just yet. So if you have a limit of $88,000, this is what really blew my mind whenever I learned this. If you max out your contributions, let's say, mm -hmm. you put in, you literally put in $88,000, you've got that laying around for some reason, and you go and buy Tesla stock, let's just say that's what you bought for sake of simplicity, and Tesla stock goes up 10 grand that you bought with your 88,000, and you are like, man, I'm gonna cash out and get that 10 grand, and you sell that Tesla stock, and you now have $98,000 in your tax-free savings account, if you pull out that 98,000, let's say you wanna buy a, I don't know, fancy car, I don't have a to do this. Let's go buy a Tesla, yeah. You buy a Tesla, you got $0 now, you bought this Tesla, you're happy. You can now put $98,000 back into your tax-free savings account. That's right. Because you've it, now moved it, your contribution limit because you've made the money and you've sold it. That's exactly right. So, so think of it this way, you can stretch your contribution limit. So you can put, you can only put up to $88,000 in, okay? That's how much you're allowed to put in there. But once it's in there and it's invested, if it grows, it actually stretches the room out. You're not gonna get taxed because it grew to 100 grand you're only gonna get taxed on the money that you put into the account, okay? So you can stretch it out and then like Jordan said, when you pull it out, you sell and pull it out, you maintain that room because it's stretched out, it didn't shrink back to its original size. You still have that extra room. The downside is it works the opposite of that too. If you invest, say I fill my account with $88,000, I invest in Tesla stock and Elon Musk turns out to be a Nazi or something and the stock the stock market just eats it, Tesla goes down to like $1 a share, I lose everything, okay? Now my tax-free savings account, because I had nothing but Tesla stock, it, my tax-free savings account is worth $2. I put 88 grand in, I lost it all, it's down to $2 and I sell. Well, when I wanna put more money in that tax-free savings account, I can only put $2 in there. Disclaimer, you only lose if you sell. Yep, that's true. If you own a stock, say Tesla, and it goes down 100% and the company, well, I shouldn't, let's say it goes down 90%, the company's only worth 10% of what you put in now. If you hold off and you're confident and you think that that company's going back up in value and they might, if you don't sell, you will not lose that contribution room. Am I right on that? Yes. Yeah. As long as you don't sell, you're not solidifying that. That's correct. If it happens to grow back to as its original as value, as you're as long as the company okay. doesn't fold. If the company goes completely gone, well, well that's you're it. screwed. If but. you own one stock and you went all in on it and it drops 90%, you probably should sell. There's probably a problem there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if you had, you know, if you could make sense of it and you're like, no, this is blown out of proportion, it's going down, it really shouldn't, and you were super confident in that, theoretically, you could and maybe should hold and it might bounce back to its previous highs and you'd be a-okay and it would be like it never happened. Um, but that's not that's not always how life works. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Just throwing out crazy examples. Yeah, these are point. wild examples. We're not advocating you do any of this, okay? No. Um, so let's jump into the other type of account, which is 
quite a bit more complicated, but I'll just tell you the basics because this is another one people don't understand. The other account is the RRSP, the Registered Retirement Savings Plan, okay? This is similar a little bit in nature to the tax-free savings account in the sense that it's gonna save you on taxes. That is the purpose of both of these accounts, okay? Because the tax man is not your friend. Um, but the RSP works a little different. It's not tax-free, it's what we call tax-deferred, meaning you don't pay tax on it now, you pay tax on it later, okay? So the idea of this account is I invest in there throughout my entire life. So it's just like the tax-free savings account, right? It works just like a regular savings account. I put money in, money comes out. Um, but the things that occur within that account, that's where I get a benefit. So when I buy stocks in that account, um, the stocks can grow there. They don't have to pay taxes on the growth of the stocks or on dividends or anything that happens within the account. I don't pay taxes on it. I only pay taxes on this one when the money comes out of the account. And at that point, ideally, it's a retirement account. Ideally, you'll be retired, okay? I, I'm, how do I make this very simple <laughs> with the taxes? So we work, the, the, whole, the whole nation works in a tax bracket system, okay? So basically, to put it simply, the more money you make, the higher rate of taxes you're going to have to pay. The idea with the RSP is that you'll invest in the RSP while you're working and you're making probably... Uh, way more money now than you will make when you're not working anymore in retirement, right? Hopefully. So the idea is, let's say, for example, right now my tax rate is 40%. My marginal tax rate is 40%, meaning when I work extra money, I go work some overtime tomorrow, I'm going to get 40% taken off my paycheck in taxes. Well, I can take that money, put it to my RRSP, and I will not be taxed that 40% on it, okay? And now, remember I told you, the money goes in there, okay, it's not taxed, but when it comes out, it will be taxed. The idea is I'm not going to pull that money out until I'm retired and I'm not working. So now when I'm not working, the government sees, well, hey, Dan, you were making like, whatever, 180 grand a year, uh, but now you're only making 20 grand a year because you're retired. So now I can pull money out of the RRSP and instead of getting taxed at 40%, I'll get taxed at like 20% or something like that. So I'll save a lot of taxes that way, okay? That's probably a little bit confusing, but there's two elements to this that people don't seem to understand that I didn't understand until somewhat recently. I'm telling you that if you, like in this example, let's say my marginal tax rate is 40%, meaning I work overtime, the government's gonna take 40%, okay? I just said, if I take that overtime money and I put it into the RRSP, I will not be taxed on that. Well, you might be thinking, well, you already paid tax, right? Because when you get a paycheck, taxes are automatically removed from that paycheck, right? So let's say I have a thousand bucks I'm willing to invest from that paycheck and I put it in the RSP, it's too late. I've, the taxes have already come off that money, right? Well, that's what your, your tax, your income tax slips at the end of the year do. You put all these numbers down. I say, hey, government of Canada, I put a thousand bucks into my RRSP and that was a thousand bucks of money you already taxed. Well, then the government's gonna look at that in my tax filings at the end of the year and say, oh, geez, you're right, Dan, we did tax you on that. Sorry, here's a tax return of 40% of that $1,000. And they will give that money back to me at tax return time. And that could be more than a thousand bucks. I can contribute, there's limits to this one as well, okay, and that's gonna change depending on your income. So look that up before you invest a whole bunch of money. But let's say I invested 20 grand throughout the year, they will give me the tax back on that 20 grand. So it's one way to save on taxes and I'll pay it down the road when I'm 70 years old or whatever. 71, I think is the age. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, but 
So that's one benefit. You get the tax back. Now, if you're if you're a big brain genius here, okay. But there's more. But there's more. Okay. So that's a huge benefit that people don't seem to understand. You get the tax back. Okay. But here's the bigger benefit that tax pe- back. that people don't look at enough. You get that tax back at tax return time, right? So let's say I invested a whole bunch of money in my RSP. I got a five thousand dollar tax return. Okay, small brain people will take that money like, holy crap, I got five grand. Let's go to uh, Mexico on a vacation, bring the whole family. It's amazing, five grand. Okay, small brain move. Big brain move is take your $5,000 tax return and put that back into your RSP next year because that's where it should have gone, right? That's the whole point of getting that tax return. It's because you invested money into your RSP that shouldn't have been taxed and it did get taxed. So now you get that tax return, throw it into your RSP for next year. Act like that money doesn't even exist. It belongs to your RSP. Now here's the crazy part. When you throw that money in your RSP, you're going to get a tax return on that tax return. Okay, I take five grand, I throw it into the RSP. The government doesn't know that that specific five grand was the tax return. They just see next year, oh, Dan put another five grand in the RSP. Oh, we, we, his tax rate is 40%. So we better give them 40% back of that five grand. You get a tax return on your tax return. And this is not fraud, people. This is how it's designed. This is the, this is the thing. This is why people love RSPs, right? Yeah. And think about it this way, too. If you do that, you keep putting the money you've been taxed, you keep throwing that back in your RSP. Well, what's happening there is your money over the 40 years, or let's say whatever, the 40 years you invest until you retire, you are compounding your money before taxes instead of the tax-free savings account where you're only compounding your money after taxes. Is that, are you with me on that, George? Yeah, that kind of lost me a little okay, bit. Okay, okay, let me, all I hear is good news. Yeah, let me backpedal just a tiny bit. Your tax-free savings account, okay, say I take a thousand bucks and I put it in my tax-free savings account, I've already been taxed on that $1,000. Mm-hmm. I've already paid tax and I will not get that tax back. If I do that same thing with the RSP, I put a thousand bucks in the RSP. Because the government gives you money back. The government's going to give me back that money at the end of the year. Yeah. And if I was a smart man, I'd throw it right back in the RSP so that that money can compound tax-free. Yeah. It makes a huge difference over the span of 40 years. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the concept of compounding interest, interest earning interest, right? The law of large numbers, large numbers earn large numbers. That's what RSPs allow you to do. Now you're going to pay tax on it down the road, but the difference, if you invested the same money in the RSP or the TFSA, the RSP is going to grow the pre-tax money. So theoretically, and very likely, your money at the end of 40 years in the RSP is going to be much larger than your money in the TFSA over 40 years. And then you'll have to pay tax after on the RSP, which kind of sucks, but you'll probably still end up with a hefty sum of money there. So TFSA, RSP, those should be, as a beginner investor, those should be those the primary accounts that you're looking for. And there's pros and cons to each. In Canada. In Canada, yeah, it'll be different if you're American or, or wherever you are. Um, Australia. Those are Canadian accounts. We do have listeners in Australia. We do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, mate. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> and other places, pretty interesting yeah. breakdown. But anyway. Um, so those should be the main things you're looking at. Uh, if you need a little more flexibility with your money, maybe the TFSA is the way to go. Although there's a whole bunch of really interesting rules about the RSP. We can do another episode down the road. Like and, we could talk. And we will. We can talk about this like for an hour each easily. But in the meantime, if you, you want to learn more about it, I've written articles about both. You can find these resources all over the internet or feel free to reach out to us and we can tell you what we know or at least point you in the right direction of where you should research. Yep. So really, really quickly, I just want to mention how to open these counts, TFSAs, RRSPs. We, I know we brought it up already, but just very quickly off, off top of my head, I'm going to plug the places that I really like. 
Wealth Simple, we both love Wealth Simple. That's probably the easiest place with no fees that you can open accounts. You can do both TFSAs or RSPs there. In fact, you can open an account where a robot does the, the investing for you for a fee, uh, or you can just do it yourself. Um, make sure you have a strategy if you're going to do it that way. More on that in a future episode. Okay? Absolutely. Highly recommend Wealth Simple. Love it. Um, if you're opening accounts, there's some things you want to look out for, like those commission fees we talked about. Is there any like service or membership fees, like a monthly fee you have to pay? Uh, but definitely just analyze all of the costs and fees behind it. Um, and also keep in mind, there's some banks, brokers, credit unions, where they'll allow you to open accounts, but they only sell you certain products, okay? And we're gonna get into the products very soon, but for example, EQ Bank, you can open uh, a tax-free savings account with EQ Bank, but they're only gonna sell you GICs in there, which I'll tell you what that is in a second, um, but you can't buy Tesla stock through EQ Bank, okay? It's not, it's not to say EQ Bank sucks, it's just to say that you need to look at the product you're trying to buy and make sure it matches what you're trying to do. For somebody who wants GICs, EQ Bank, you'll love that. I actually own a GIC through EQ Bank. It's great. Uh, but that's not going to be everyone's application. And you can have multiple of these accounts. You can have an EQ Bank account and a Wealthsimple account. Um, but that confuses things. Anyways, that's just in a nutshell um, how you would open these accounts. You go through a broker or a bank. Uh, you open up the account, they'll walk you right through it, and you're off to the races usually in the same day. Yeah, because a, a tax-free savings account is just literally a bank account. Like, That's it. I, I've had some questions and comments in my life. People were sort of misconceive what a, what a TFSA is, yep. and it's just a box, and that box can live anywhere. You can go to TD and get one. You can go to RBC and get one. You can go to Scotiabank and get one. Don't do that. Hate the banks. Scotia they suck. Scotiabank's the worst. But you could go to any of the other places. There, there are, like... Um, there are money management places that do it. There's the online brokers that we really advocate for, um, like we already just talked about. So just to be clear, RSP and a TFSA are just account types that you can hold yeah. with any institution. Yeah, and one of the biggest mistakes that I see is people open up tax-free savings accounts and they save money in that account because that's with it. because that's what people say. Yeah. Like that's what our parents say or that's whoever is. Yeah. They tell you like, oh, you should open a TFSA, and then they don't really understand it themselves, and they're like, yeah, just open it and put your save your money in there. So that's what you do. You put a bunch of cash yeah. in that account. It just sits there and it makes 0.1%. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you just parked your cash in an EQ Bank savings account right now, you're getting 2.5%. And that's how these money management places fail. We're gonna do an episode on this one too because oh, yeah. I want to talk about it. Yeah. I opened up a tax free savings account with uh, an investment broker person company and I accumulated up to five almost five thousand dollars in there but it, I didn't do anything with it so I accumulated interest but it was like less than one percent yeah you're getting so I made like a hundred bucks maybe over like a period of six years and I was pretty young at the time like if I would have done anything else probably remember we I, just talked about if you invested your five grand in the S&P 500 you'd average out probably to nine almost 10 percent a yeah, year instead yeah, of your pennies yeah that would have been cool but I had no clue nobody will tell you that yeah, crap no because it's, I don't know, it's all a big conspiracy. Anyways, <laughs> let me take off my tinfoil hat. I'll put on my Money Basics hat. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> okay, uh, so you've heard me talk about, uh, I've probably said the word ETF, I've said stocks, I've said GIC, so what the hell are these things? Start from the beginning, GIC. Okay, so the GIC is a Guaranteed Investment Certificate, and this is... Um, as close to guaranteed investment as you can get. I know like at the beginning of the episode, I said investments aren't guaranteed. GIC is about as close as you're gonna get to that, okay? Now, the next thing on my list is a bond. Now, bonds and GICs are very, very similar in nature, 
ultra safe, typically low interest. Okay, so that's the trade-off. Anything in investing, that's the trade-off you're gonna get. The safer you go for, the less return you're gonna get. The more dangerous or risky you go for, the higher return you stand to get. But it might not work out for you, right? It's you stand to lose more. You stand to win more, you stand to lose more, yeah. okay? And so, right now, February, Third, 2023 interest rates are at an all-time high yeah so gic rates are like crazy right now it's crazy so remember i told you the stock market averages out to almost 10 percent a year the s p 500 um gic's like i had seen them at like 5.5 percent that yep. you can lock in over like i think it was like five or six years now they've come down a little bit but uh, i'm pretty sure you can still get a one-year gic at five percent so that means i take my my $10,000 and I put it into a GIC and it locks up for a year. I can't touch that money for one year, but at the end of that one year, they're gonna pay me a 5% return on that money. And what that is, it's simply the banks taking my money and lending it out and they're making a whole bunch of money. They're making more than 5%, but they're gonna give me back 5% and they're gonna promise me that though they will pay me 5%. That's all That's it is. Even if the market tanks. Even if the market even tanks. Even if there's problems. The only if, way you're not getting that is if that bank goes bankrupt. And even then, I'm pretty sure GICs are insured. So I think even if they go bankrupt, you'll get your money. I'm pretty sure. The Canada banking system is super highly regulated. And mm -hmm. even during the crazy 2008-2009 housing crisis, Crash, the Canada banks actually survived quite well. Yeah, the U.S. was crazy well, we're bad. Way more regulated than the American yeah. banks. So yeah. that's why even a lot of foreign investors buy Canadian banks. Like RBC is like a world-renowned bank because of the, the built-in forced safety margins, so that they don't crash during a 2008 event. Hmm. Um, so that's GICs. Bonds are very similar, but that's issued by companies. But basically you would get like a massive company like Enbridge or something. They would issue bonds. They'll say, hey, you give us this money, we'll give you a 3% return, guaranteed. Now those returns are gonna vary depending on you know the, the general market conditions. Uh, but, but usually, like not counting the times we're in right now, GICs and bonds, like I'd say they average like one and a half, two percent 2% for a year term. Um, but you know that that varies so that's always going to change but right now like jordan said gic is especially very attractive i currently have a, a six month gic going with eq bank at 3.5 percent uh and i see that they have one years uh, so one year gic's at five percent but you can lock these things in for like five ten years where they'll pay you that percent that they're talking about uh every year that's an annual rate so if you locked in you wouldn't but let's say you locked in a five percent over ten years every year they'll give you five percent that doesn't exist right now don't go looking for it <laughs> for 10 years you'd probably find like two or three percent but anyways um the next thing on the list of things you can buy and you can buy all these things in both rsps and tfsas okay uh, the next thing you can buy is a stock and a stock is simply um a share it's a portion of a company okay so let's say money basics makes it big because you guys keep sharing with all your friends like i know you do uh, money basics goes big and jordan and i say okay you know what we need to expand the company we got to go big we're going pro so we bring this company public because jordan and i we got like 100 bucks between us we're broke just kidding um but we want to bring this company public and bring in investors so all of a sudden uh we got ryan here who i know is listening uh, <laughs> ryan says yo i want in okay ryan you give us five grand and i will give you half the company okay so ryan gives us five grand we give him shares of the company which are worth half the company that's basically what's happening with stock okay 
at a grand scale. We're talking millions of shares. So Jordan and I, we own EQ Bank stock. We own Bell stock. Uh, you probably own Telus. I own Telus. Yeah, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I just want to iterate because this is what confused me when I first started. Why would a company do this? To raise money, typically for expansion. Yeah. Um, so a company will sell tiny pieces of itself to raise money so they could usually do something with it. Obviously, they want to expand. They're going to pay themselves. They're going to pay dividend. Like they, they just they take this money. They do what they want with it. Usually, it's to make the company worth more money to make their investors happy because these companies sell millions, if not billions, of stocks to many people and large. Anyway, so they want to make the people happy. Is the point? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is when you buy shares of these companies, so for example, let's talk Bell, like the phone company, the internet company. Jordan and I both own Bell stock, okay? So I own like uh, 50 shares. Jordan probably owns somewhere around that too, okay? More. <laughs> Jordan owns more. I like Bell. <laughs> well, Bell has, like you can look this up. This information is public, but let's say Bell has like 300 million shares. So if you were to divide 300 million, uh, I'm too stupid to do that. I'm so stupid. If you, were, if you were to figure out what portion 50 shares is, like what percentage 50 shares is of 300 million, that's how much of the company that I, Dan, own of Bell. I am like a 0.01% owner of the entire company. And that's something that was funny when I was reading the book Invest, Invested and then I listened to Phil Town, the Danielle Town's dad, yeah. and he has his whole company, Rule 1 Investing, he's talking about value investing. He's like super like gets you pumped about it. He's like, if you buy one share of a company, one share, even if you spent five bucks, you own that company. And he like drives it to you. So now like I'm driving down even today coming here and I see CIBC, which I own. I was like, yeah. I own that company. I yeah. own like a thousand bucks. Like, the company's worth like they're, yeah, but 60, they're, they're billion. That's the crazy part. They are literally working for you, the shareholder. Yeah. The teller there, the, the person counting the cash, the, the, the CEO, the chief financial officer, all the big wigs, they're all working for Jordan who owns a thousand bucks and everyone else too. But they work for you. And like you can find this is true because you just have to go to any of these companies' websites, go to their investor relations page, which all companies that are public have. Mm -hmm. They have all of their financial statements, all of their They're required by law to show you all this stuff. Everything's on here. You can read all of it. It can get a little confusing if you're a beginner investor. Even me, I look at it sometimes and I'm like, ugh. Um, but you can find resources that will break this stuff down for you. But my point is is that they do like investor calls. So like the, the – I, I – well, sometimes the CEO will do it, but usually that's someone often, that's, that's the, the top five yeah. people, you know, will will get on this call and talk to shareholders, and they'll they'll email you, they'll put this information out. You can call in and listen online on your phone. Like I've done it, yeah. you've done it. You know, we've listened yeah. to these calls. Like I am part of this company, and this crazy billionaire CEO is talking. Maybe not specifically to me, but kinda because I'm an investor. Yeah. Even if I only own like zero point zero 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 one percent of the company or less. Nonetheless, they're required by law to do this. They're trying to make us all happy. Now, I'm just a tiny little minnow investing in this company, but some people are not. They're giant whales, and they have huge amounts of money into these companies. And the more stock, the more money you put in, the more stocks you own, right? Like, say, Jordan and I put a couple thousand bucks in. We own 50 or 60 shares of Bell each, okay? But if we put $100,000, we would own, like, a 1,000 shares or something like that. If we put in $5 million, we would own, like, tens of thousands of shares, right? So the more you own, the bigger chunk of the company you own. Um, 
and therefore, as the company goes up, you're going to make more money. But also, companies pay out dividends, which is a whole other thing we're going to talk about. Love it. But in a nutshell, dividends is the company paying out its profits to, to shareholders like us. So we always post these pictures of our dividends that we're so stoked about. It's What they're doing is they're saying, okay, well, Jordan owns 0.001% of the company. So Jordan is entitled to 0.01% of the profits and that's what that dividend is they're paying us their profits and the more you own the more profits you're entitled to and the beauty of all this is that if we own certain companies and then a giant trillionaire like warren buffett comes and says you know what guys i like bell i'm going to put a trillion dollars into this company i'm really exaggerating it this is kind of impossible there's only a certain amount of shares that get issued but point is is if some big fish comes big whale and they buy a crap ton of this company they go up in value yeah. so then dan and i riding off the coattails of these big big whales we'll make money. Our thousand shares or hundred shares will turn into, we'll, we'll go from a value of whatever it is, 50 bucks to to a hundred bucks maybe per share, which means we just almost doubled, we doubled our money, yep. um, which is a potential with any company. And, and you have to be careful. Like there's a whole, but there's a lot to unpack and just saying that. And I'm not saying go out and buy Bell because Bell's the best or any company, you really need to do your own research and, and look this stuff up. But the point is, if the company makes money, you make money, the value goes up, you make money on the, what they call a capital gain. And, or if the company also pays out a dividend, you make money on the, you can make money on the dividend as well. And the beauty of a dividend is that money, usually there is risk that people will stop the dividend. And we've had recent companies that we own that have cut their dividend by they a certain amount. It. They, they pay you less. It. But most companies strive to continuously pay that dividend, but also continuously to increase the dividend because the benefit to the company of doing this is that they, they get a status if they do it for so long. And that status can be important to certain companies because huge investors love that. If a huge investor has a lot of money, sees that, oh, Bell's been paying their dividend for 50 years. They're a dividend aristocrat. They're in a dividend king. Those are the, some of the categories you paid for an X amount of time. The big companies will be like, that's awesome. That's a sustainable dividend. We're we're going to invest all of our people's money and it's just all good news for everyone. But it's not, and it's not just like a single big fish like Warren Buffett. It's pension funds. It's yeah. huge investment firms. It's thousands of little guys like Jordan and I, like they want to keep shareholders happy and dividends is a good way to do that. And if they screw around with that and make people unhappy, people are going to run away and sell it and it's going to drive the stock down, which is going to make the company worth less. So they don't want that. So hopefully that was a pretty all right breakdown of yeah. stocks and like we could again go on forever. We'll probably do it a whole yeah. episode just about that. But anyway, continue. So as much as we were talking about stocks there, um, I, I wouldn't really advocate anyone to go too heavy, at least at this stage of the game. Don't go heavy on any single stock, okay? When you don't know what's going on or what you're doing, if you put most of your money in one stock, I'll, I almost promise you, you're going to end up losing money on that stock. Okay? I'm going to put an asterisk there. I'll let you finish, but asterisk, I'm going to say something about that. Okay, so don't put all your money in one stock when you don't know what you're doing. As you get more educated, more confidence, you know what's going on, okay, maybe it makes sense that you can make an educated gamble, uh, but that's what it is when you're putting all your money in one stock. It's a gamble. So what a beginner should probably consider, one of the options, is a thing called an ETF. An ETF is an exchange-traded fund. So remember at the beginning I talked about the S&P 500, where it's the 500 biggest companies all wrapped up in a neat little bundle? Well, the ETF is basically that, okay? It's many, many stocks all put into a neat little bundle. And I'll just leave it at that to not be too confusing. Um, so you get all these stocks in one little bundle and you as the Joe Blow investor, you buy and sell this ETF just like any other stock, okay? 
it, it's you look it up and ETFs they all they all trade with a thing called a ticker okay so it's like a three or four letter symbol and that identifies what the stock is so Tesla for example we keep talking about Tesla if I wanted to find Tesla stock I'd go on Google and I type in TSLA that's Tesla okay and it'll pop up Tesla stock ETFs they have that same ticker system so uh, the one that I'm always talking about, if I wanted to buy the S&P 500 here in Canada in Canadian dollars I would type in VFV and that stands for Vanguard something fund. I don't know what it is, but it's a Vanguard fund. And VFV is simply the label for the ETF that, that is the S&P 500. And I buy and sell it just like a stock. But when I buy one share of VFV, it gives me a tiny portion of the 500 companies that are the S&P 500, even though I'm only buying one share of an ETF. It's this basket of stocks that I now own, okay? And the benefit of this is, let's say I buy the S&P 500 instead of just a single stock, okay? So I buy the S&P 500, Jordan buys just Tesla, okay? Tesla loses 5% in a day. Well, now Jordan's out 5%. Well, Tesla happens to be in the S&P 500, or at least it was, I wonder if that's changed. Let's just say it is, okay? Tesla's in the S&P 500. Jordan lost 5%. I lost like 0.01% because Tesla's one company out of 500 in that basket of stocks, okay? And general market theory, if you read the theory of the whole North American market, or even global markets for that matter, they basically go up in a ratio of three to one. So for every three good years you have, you typically have about one bad year, okay? They go up three times as much as they go down over a long timeline, okay? Over 100 years, it's gone up three times more than it's gone down as far as like years of, of either good years or bad years. Okay, so by that logic, if I own just a little bit of every single stock that exists over time, I am almost guaranteed to have a, a, an amount of money that's increasing instead of decreasing as long as I hold it for long enough. And that's why most people should consider buying ETFs. Also, the opposite is true. If I own Tesla and you own this company, this ETF, excuse me, that has a portion of Tesla, if I go up 5%, then I'm up 5%, Correct. but you might only I go, might up go up 0.1%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this goes back to what we said at the beginning. With low risk comes low reward. With high risk comes high reward. Okay. So when you buy something like the S&P 500, okay, you're looking at somewhere around a 10% return every year, 9, 10% in that ballpark. Okay. That's, that's kind of the average, right? That's a very acceptable like risk to reward benefit. Um, like the ratios, the ratio is good there. Okay. Um, you might buy nothing but Tesla stock and have a year where you make 100%. Like, holy crap, I'm the new Warren Buffett, which happened to all the crypto bros and happened to the tech people before that and the GameStop people before that. I probably got the order of these things wrong, but you get my point, okay? You look like a genius for the year that you're doing good. And then you look like weed a moron, stocks. the weed stocks. <laughs> then you look like a moron the next year when you've lost it all, right? But those who just bought the S&P 500, you know, they're doing just fine. And a hilarious example of this for my my keeners here you can look up a chart of warren buffett that old guy we were talking about legendary investor you can look up a chart of warren buffett's performance over the last like 10 years or something versus kathy wood who owned uh, one of these etf funds she she was the one who puts these things together 
Um, she owned an ETF of all the tech stocks. And through the last couple of years through COVID, when tech stocks were running, there was all these like news articles and all these. She's a genius. All these stock girls like, Kathy oh my Wood, God. she's so smart. Oh, Warren Buffett's a moron. And you see these charts and it's like Warren Buffett's like the turtle, you know, the turtle in the hair. The, the, he's going up nice and slow, but he's going up and not too much change, nothing too aggressive in his stock holdings. And you got Kathy Wood. It's just like an absolute peak, just skyrocketing to the moon. And then a year later, she comes crazy crashing down to earth and way below Warren Buffett and he's still just going up his 9% a year and he, he ends up crushing her in the long run. It's hilarious. And that's the concept that we're talking about right now. My favorite meme and we should share it soon is uh, you see the, the Queen Elizabeth rest in peace um, is beside <laughs> I think her grandson or something and he's crying a little baby because he's like four and she's just standing all super calm and it's like this is like the value investors and these are the crypto investors or anybody that does these high risk investments that are losing they're crying and losing their minds and the value investors just standing strong and going steady and that's why I, I love it um, but here's my asterisk and this ties in really well with what we're talking about um, Please, for the love of everything, don't buy the shiny thing that Buddy's talking about before you look into it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, I did not say don't buy it. I said don't buy it until you look into it. And I don't mean like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to buy it. I mean literally dive in, okay? And I have a really good example of this. Cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the, the, the Dogecoin, all the, everything, all of them. Super big last couple of years, right? Or they were. And all my buddies, are. yeah, all okay. my buddies were like, dude, you got to do it. You got to invest in crypto. Do you own crypto? And everyone's like, crypto, 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 crypto. And I was like, yeah, all right, maybe I should look into this. So I started looking into it and I was like, I don't, I don't understand this. Like, I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it's made. I don't understand how it makes money. I don't understand how to invest in it. And I looked into it. I had people explain it to me. I watched YouTube videos. I read about it. Um, I even mined crypto for like, three months on my computer because I was able to do so and I still didn't really understand it. I said, I am not touching it with a 10 foot pole. Now, some people made a lot of money on it and then all of a sudden it just tanked and everyone lost a bunch of money on it. And now you don't really hear much about crypto, although lately it's been going up a little bit. You hear about a little bit more yeah. now. But my point is, is that like my friends like jumped up and went down a bunch of money and I'm still slowly making my money because my plan is very long term retirement. And we've seen this with weeds, Canada weed stocks. I don't remember what year it was, but whatever, some time ago. We've seen it with the tech stocks over COVID. All the tech stocks went up like crazy. Facebook, Google, AMD, NVIDIA, Intel, all these big tech companies went up like crazy over the pandemic. Yeah, now, now what do you see in the news? Layoffs, Layoffs. stock going down, uh, cutbacks, decreasing productivity, uh, all this crazy stuff, right? And it's like, okay, that all affects everything, right? Me as a shareholder in Intel, you know, at the peak of COVID and I'm learning that they can't even keep up with the demand, thinking about everybody's working from home, everybody needs a computer, all this stuff's going crazy. Intel's like, we're, we're gonna spend $50 billion on building three new crazy plants in the States so we can up productivity. And I'm thinking, like, who am I? I'm an idiot compared to these people. I don't know anything. But I'm thinking this is gonna stop at some point, right? Yeah. They're gonna ramp up production yeah. and no one's gonna buy anything. Shopify was a bad one for that i called that one yeah they just got destroyed right so anyway just just but it was all these tech companies yeah. they, they rose this they, they rode this huge increase of of demand through covid because everyone shifted to needing technologies they all work from home and stuff it just shifted everything so these tech companies they had a choice to make it's like the demand is way more than we can meet so do we make massive investment to meet the demand and i'm sure they were probably weighing like hey this probably won't last forever but what do we do do we not provide the service or do we invest massively so that we can provide the service and just roll the dice 
and a lot of them did decide to make massive investments. Shopify was one I was watching. Remember I years ago I invested in Shopify. I was all pissed because I'd made some money and if I had just held it and not sold, I would have made a ton of money. Um, so anyways, since then I was always looking at it. I was like, I want to buy it. I want to buy back, but it's been running too much. It's sketching me out. It ran right through COVID, and I said, "This is this is out to lunch. This is unsustainable." Yeah, because they went from you were investing them like what fifty bucks well, or something. They've split since then. Yeah, so I'm not even sure. But let's forget the is. split because that's confusing. Basically, I made. Uh, well, I, just, I, I made I made probably about a twenty percent gain, and if I had held, I would have made like an eight hundred percent. Yeah, because because I think they're when you invested in them, if I don't remember, like it was like fifty to hundred dollars a share, something like that. And then I remember looking at it one day because I thought about buying it. They were at eighteen hundred dollars for one share of yeah. the company. So within a space of like four years or five years, they had run up from about $50 a share to $1,800 yeah. a share. I was like, what? So I was pissed because I sold and made like a couple grand. I was all happy about myself. But if I had held, I would have made like 80 grand or something like that. But then through COVID, they had that huge spike. Okay, and I saw, I read, I listened to the to the calls. I, I read the balance, I read the financial reports. And I saw the massive investments and they weren't really that profitable. I don't even know if they were ever profitable. Um, and I started thinking, how the hell are they worth so much when they barely make money or didn't? I can't remember. It's been a few years now. Um, and sure enough, the you know the tide is, is turning now, right? You got high interest rates. The demand is slumped. Everything's going down. Shopify has been annihilated since those highs. So I don't really regret my decision to take the money. I mean, if I had a crystal ball, obviously I would have done it differently, but nobody does have a crystal ball. You can't and, time and, the market. And if I just held on to it, I probably would have held it right to the top and right back down to the bottom and I would have been no further ahead. Yeah, so anyways, my the whole thing I wanted to get out here, we're talking about all these companies, we're mentioning, we're shitting on them all, the tech companies, the crypto. And, and the point isn't that they're bad companies or they're bad investments. A lot of them are actually probably good investments. But the point is you can't go all in on any single one of them because you now we've just told you what happens when you do that. If I'm 100% in on Shopify stock and that's all I have, I don't own anything else, I will lose my shirt when they go down, right? You want to buy crypto? Cool, buy crypto. But don't put all of your money into crypto. Put like five or 10% of your money into crypto, put the rest in a whole bunch of other stuff across many different sectors, many different industries, okay? So that you are insulated against the downside, okay? Losing money is worse than than making, how do I say it? Obviously losing money is worse than making money, but your, your downside will affect you more than your upside, okay? So a 50% gain, is just as bad or just as good as protecting yourself against a 33% loss. Okay, you can run the math on that. That's not going to make sense unless you pull out a calculator. But basically, protect your downside is my point, and you do that by buying a little bit of everything, like those ETFs we talked about. Okay, don't buy the shiny thing. God damn it! You need to look up and look at things and do your own research, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Now there's one last, we'll call it, it's called an asset class. Um, not even an asset class, I guess. There's one more vehicle to invest in um, that I haven't mentioned that I should mention, and that's a mutual fund, okay? What a mutual fund is, is it's very much like an ETF. So it's this basket of stocks. It's a basket of various investments all wrapped up into one neat little product. Uh, but picture like the ETF is like, the cool California surfer dude laid back, it's all good. And the mutual funds like that stiff uncle who's like just sits in his chair and he's cranky and he's got all these rules and he's kind of a jerk. Okay, <laughs> That's what a mutual fund is. 
It's the ETF with high fees and basically lots of rules about how you can trade it and often fees to move money around and stuff. Um, mutual funds can perform well, okay? Um, and the reason they advertise that they do so well is because mutual funds are often actively managed, meaning there's some person who looks after this basket of investments and they say, okay, you know what? This investment isn't doing so good this month. I'm going to take that one out and I'm going to put this new thing in there and that's going to make this, the thing perform better. And the problem is they charge a pretty hefty fee to do this, usually somewhere around the 2% range, sometimes more, sometimes less, but that eats into your overall gains. So I'm not a huge fan of mutual funds. That being said, there are some funds that do better than ETFs that do better than the general market, but it's not all of them, okay? So I've got a personal vendetta against mutual funds. Jordan uh, Jordan actually own owns one. some mutual funds <laughs> and he, he heard me bitching and he looked it up and did his analysis and decided, you know what, my mutual fund's not half bad and I'm happy with it. And you know what, for somebody who doesn't wanna learn about investing, doesn't wanna take this on themselves, that's a very good avenue. You can just throw your money at a mutual fund, let them deal with it, and you don't have to stress a day of your life, okay? Uh, in Jordan's situation, I don't think it's a bad idea. It's a way of diversifying his bets. He invests in individual stocks in a very kind of spread out way like we've been talking about, which is good. But what's nice about also having the mutual fund is if he's wrong on those stocks, well, he also has a mutual fund. So the odds of him being wrong on everything he ever touches are very slim at this point. So there's a time and a place is my point. Yeah, there's a few other accounts that we didn't touch on. So that was the caveat to my my mutual fund is we I have a I hold an RESP, which is a registered education savings plan in there. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, but that was anyway, there's there's reasons for my decision on that. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like tier with dance shitting on mutual funds and I, I i i'm thinking the whole time i have i have yeah. a mutual fund but anyway it, it it's it's uh we 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 planned it out figured it out and we we thought it would be good so it's yeah. fine it's, Listen, it's all right i i don't like mutual funds it doesn't mean you don't have to like mutual yeah, funds okay yeah. i'm opinionated doesn't mean i'm right on everything i say okay okay but i really like this here i just want to say this one thing getting back to the stocks and the companies and all kind of stuff and re doing your own research peter lynch one of my favorite guys one said in a video, and I'll never forget it, he says, if you can't, if you, he said, and I quote, if you can't explain to me why you own a stock in 30 seconds or less, then you shouldn't own it. You should not own a stock. You should not invest in single companies if you can't explain in 30 seconds or less why you own it. And that's not to say, because uh, I like it. Um, that's to say, okay, I've looked into their books a little bit. Are they making money? Are they losing money? Do they have debts? Do they have these types of things? And you can find all the information very easily and you can find other people that will do that research for you. Like Daniel Pronk is an example, or Griffin Milks, any of these YouTube guys we yeah. talked about. They look up these companies. You can literally Google, tell me about a company or, or whatever and it'll pop up on YouTube. Someone has an explanation about it. Now don't just trust that YouTube person. Yeah, they might have reference. a cross reference, but look up a few things and figure out your stuff for yourself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're winding down this episode, but uh, there's a couple of like stats and things that I want to kind of read out to you that I think might blow your mind a little bit and put some of these lessons into perspective a little bit. Okay. So, um, I looked up in the research for this episode, some stats that I kind of, I've been aware of these things, but I wouldn't be able to rattle off the exact numbers to you. Um, so I actually have these written out for you and I want to tell you some stuff. So, we talked about this idea of a mutual fund. There's somebody, they charge fees in order to, to sort of pick and choose stocks and move things around uh, with the idea that they're gonna do better than somebody who just buys the entire market and just chills and does nothing, okay? And the problem is, that so that's what we call active management, right? The person in the mutual fund moving the stocks around. That's active management. Um, 
So this article I read, it's called How Bad is Active Management? And they say it's bad and it's getting worse. So every year the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, so these are these big, huge baskets of stocks, um, they do a study on active versus passive management. So the mutual fund person moving everything around versus the not actively managed uh, ETF where they just buy a little bit of everything and just chill and just let it ride. Last year they found that after 10 years, 85% of large cap funds underperformed the S&P 500. And after 15 years, nearly 92% are trailing the index. So big words, what does that mean? So after 10 years, the people who just bought a little bit of all the stocks and chilled and did nothing, uh, they did much better than 85% of people who were picking and choosing all the stocks, okay? And after 15 years, 92% of the people who actively moved stocks around did worse than the people who just bought a little bit of everything and just chilled. They did a, uh, a study with, uh, or an experiment, excuse me, with a monkey. It's a true story. In Stock the, picking? Yeah, in the 80s. Uh, I think it was in the 80s. And Wealth Simple has this on their master classes. Uh, they talk about it for a second. But they actually did a, I don't know, I think it was Harvard, one of these universities in the States. And they took a monkey with a dart and he threw darts at a board, which were stock tickers, were companies. And the monkey that threw random darts at the board portfolio outperformed some of the top um, stock picker guys. Stock picking guys. In the, in the 80s so yeah this is this is this is yeah. not so new the, the more <laughs> yeah the moral of the story is it's very very hard for even the most professional money managers to beat joe blow on his computer like jordan and i who just buy the s p 500 who just buy a little tiny bit of every single stock and just let it ride for 20 or 30 years okay and the last thing i want to leave you with is just i got a quick chart here about uh s p 500 um performance so that basket of stocks performance uh since from 1988 till basically present day okay so we're looking at this and i'll just start rattling off some random like year to year gain or loss okay 1988 7% gain 1989 17% gain 1990 they lost 17% 91 7.8% gain 92 lost 4% 93 bounced back up almost 29% Okay, so, so far you might notice a trend that for when you've got a, a bad year, it typically bounces back pretty hard, okay? And this goes on and on until you get a span it. From 1995 to 1997, you're looking at basically 40% of gains where you had 98, where you had a 3% loss. And then 99 and 2000, you had about a 35% gain between those two years. Um, this just goes on and on and on. And you're looking at basically for every red number, every down number, you've got minimum three or four green numbers. Uh, and the green numbers tend to outpace the red numbers by sometimes double or triple over the period of a couple of years. Uh, so it's pretty incredible. And our most recent run rate from 2019, 2020, and 2021, uh, those years combined, you're looking at probably about 45% gain. 2022, we lost 8.66%. Uh, and then currently this year, I saw a stat, I think the S&P was up so far this year, and it's very early. We were up, I think, 7 or 7.5%. Um, all that to say that basically the track record is quite good if you just buy a little bit of everything and just wait it out. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot to learn and it can be really overwhelming. And I remember even after I had done all my learning and research and like I came up with a, a little bit of money that I wanted to invest in the stock market, I was really nervous even just moving 
Um, I don't remember how much I had. I think it was ten thousand dollars to start, and I was like, "Oh man, what do I do?" Like even when I bought my first few stocks, I was like nervous, and then all of a sudden I bought them, and they went down three percent, and the numbers were red, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I was losing my mind. The point is, is it's super important to invest in money that you don't care about. Okay, it's. I mean, obviously we care about our money, but the point, you know, we talked about paying off the debt and having an emergency fund. That's your insurance. The money you invest in the stock market or in any of these, you know, stock market with these vessels is money that you shouldn't care about. You sh you could light it on fire, whatever. It's not going to change your life. It, obviously, we don't want to lose it, but that's that's the point. You don't want to go in here being emotional. You don't want to go in here being stressed. If your money goes down, so as an example, right now, overall, my portfolio, I'm down like four grand. If I sold all of my companies right now, I would I will have lost four thousand. I'll be down four thousand um, dollars, and I'm whatever. Um, why? Because I've done my research. I like the companies that I own. I think they're going to bounce back and I'm going to hold them for 30 years. And keep in mind, we're in a bear market recession. Like most people are down right now. That's kind of the point. And this is when you need, well, you don't need to, but this is a great opportunity to buy those stocks cheap so that next year maybe or the year after you'll be way ahead right that's yeah. just the way it works that's the name of the game and i say 30 years that might be too long but my point is is into into retirement if like by the time you know let's let's say i'm thinking about retirement at 55 i'm 36 now you know i've got roughly 20 years before i start really considering retirement 20 years is a long time all of my companies could be very much in the green by that time or not i mean we're taking a bit of a gamble but i'm fairly confident that 20 years we're going to zoom out quite a bit and I'm going to be up and I'm going to start being able to sell some of my companies if I want to make, use that some of that money in retirement and that's that's my strategy my plan and I'm sticking to it so the shiny thing does not interest me right now good <laughs> if I got a little bit of money and I want to have some fun and gamble maybe I'll take a thousand bucks and say yeah let's buy I don't know uh, some I don't know whatever the shiny thing and see what happens you won't win the lottery if you never buy the ticket right <laughs> you got to pay to play you know that's it all right, this has been a loaded episode. There was a lot to unpack here and we will talk about investing here and there, maybe not necessarily next episode, but it will come up again and again. We'll talk about a lot of these concepts and probably deep dive a lot of them. Um, so if you have any feedback for us, anything you'd like to hear about, anything you were confused about, let us know because we will design our upcoming episodes based on feedback. We often do come up with a lot of these ideas based on what people are telling us, what people liked, and, and just the feedback we get. So we do appreciate it. Let us know what you liked, and we'll have links in the description to a lot of the things that we had mentioned uh, and resources for you to check out to do some further reading because uh, there is a lot to learn here. Yeah, for sure. And we are definitely going to keep talking about it. We'll bring it up again in other ways. Um, if you guys are already following us on YouTube and Instagram uh, and TikTok, then thank you. If you're not, please go check us out, Money Basics. You can find it. Like, subscribe, share that stuff, guys. Really appreciate it. You know, we put out this content for free. We make a little bit of money on the articles for now. Um, but, you know, the subscribe and liking and sharing is no cost to you. And it can give us a little, little bit of a benefit down the road. So we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Anything else? Nope, we're good. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Cheers.